Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 786th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is helping small farmers get started successfully. We're talking with Judith Horvath about a resilient food supply chain. Judith has journeyed from white-collar business executive to hair sheep and dairy goat farmer. When COVID and global events laid bare the fragility of our food supply chain, Judith found a way to leave corporate life to concentrate solely on farming. Good for you, Judith. Today, she's helping launch a new generation of small farmers with the goal of establishing a resilient local food supply chain based on regenerative agriculture methods rotationally grazed grass-fed meats and nutrient-dense produce. She's on a mission to help people get started farming and be immediately successful. Welcome to the show today, Judith. Are you ready to rock? Hey, Greg, I sure am. Let's do this. Awesome. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, sure thing. Today, I'm a farmer first. Yeah, I'm also an agricultural consultant, but I'm a farmer first because if I wasn't a farmer, none of this would mean a bit of anything because I I actually live the life that I'm trying to help people achieve for themselves. But it wasn't always that way. 20 years ago, uh, I just got started in doing some sort of home things. and I didn't know it was called homesteading. I just knew that my kids (laughs) had allergies and I found myself having to take a class to learn how to read the ingredient labels and foods to avoid the things that they were allergic to. Yeah. And the thing that really was crushing was that it wasn't actually foods they were allergic to. It was the stuff that we put into it. Yep. That was causing their problems. So that turned into an adventure where I ripped up my backyard and turned it into a produce garden because back then, more pure foods, I should say, and cleaner foods were not easily accessible. And even the ones that are accessible today are super, super expensive. And we were of modest means. So I figured I want to know where my food comes from and I enjoy gardening anyway. So adding one and one together was less lawn to mow and more fun. And I figured it was great to teach the kids where their food came from. And next thing I got fruit trees, I got a backyard garden, I've got illegal backyard chickens and It just went from there. So I I started learning how to cook with whole ingredients and learning how to make foods from scratch to make sure everyone stayed healthy. And it just snowballed from there because we ended up getting busted for these chickens that we weren't supposed to have. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And so we said, "Eh, this isn't a phase. We're going to double down. So we went ahead and we got a farm. So then I kept on living a double life for a long time and kind of splitting my heart in half and going to the soul killing, sucking hole of corporate America where nothing makes sense. And you get home, you got nothing to show for it. And then I would be weekend warrior gardening and farming and enjoying my farm, which we started with zero, by the way. So it was a total slog rehabbing the the ground and, and putting up fences and reclaiming pastures and scrub and rebuilding portions of outbuildings and stuff. I was just, it was so much work, but uh, physical labor, just like pure feels like physical labor. But after doing that for eight years, I was really starting to get somewhere and it was starting to become very apparent that I was going to have to make some sort of a choice. And 
right on cue, along came a pandemic. And <laughs> that <changed laughs> there I was. A, that changed a lot of lives. I know. It's like one of those, we were talking about this right before we started, which was inertia. We're, we're creatures of habit. We don't really yep. like to change things. It's not that we don't like to. I think it doesn't occur to us to, to change something if it's not really yeah. broken. And I didn't feel like it was broken. It was just a, one day I'll get to, I'll, I'll get to retire and that'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. The pandemic changed everything. So I suddenly had two hours a day back where I wasn't commuting. Driving. Driving. Yeah, exactly. Driving, actually driving. And then wow. mentally recovering from the drive. An hour there, an hour back. And there is so much that you can do from a food production standpoint with two hours a day. Actually, five days a week, right? So that's really 10 hours right. a week. With just 10 hours a week, I was astonished at the leap forward that we could make. And right? So, yeah. When I was in college, so I went back to college late in life. I bet mm -hmm. went back to college when I was 40. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'd been living at my farm, urban farm in Phoenix for about a decade, a little over a decade. And I was farming the front and backyard mm -hmm. and going to a farmer's market once a week, mostly for fun and to mm -hmm. make some extra cash. And it took me eight hours a week. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's astonishing. I think we don't always think of our time in like little teeny nips and blocks like that. But yeah. when you start adding stuff up, whether you're saving pennies and dollars and one day you're able to buy a Ford, you know, buy a Ford Explorer, or if you're saving or go on vacation, or you're just trying to do something on the side, or you're doing a hobby, or how much screen time have you spent? These little nibbles add up. And I was astonished at how quickly it was literally overnight like one day i was driving the next day i wasn't so boom it was right there and it was astonishing so after working from home for two years i had the opportunity to exit and just do this full time because honestly i decided i needed to find a way to do it because yeah. the thought of going back to the prior environment like my heart couldn't take it emotionally hard. I just, I, I, I couldn't bring myself. I started feeling physically ill thinking about it. Yep. And I said, I, I can't do this. I, I, I need to increase the meaningfulness of my life. I, I need to increase the productivity. I need to dig deeper into my, my life's work here, not shrink away from it. I felt like this was a, an opportunity laid forth at my doorstep and I would be a fool and somehow a, a terrible person. Like lightning might strike if I didn't take advantage of this gift. Yeah. And yeah. So I decided to figure it out and go into consulting and it's been extraordinarily busy and it's been pretty successful so far, I must say. So here we are. Nice. Congrats. So thanks. You, you went into consulting. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So farming, as I think most people know, is not the way to get rich. Right. <laughs> Yeah, our food supply chain doesn't really reward the people who do the actual growing and the labor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's the case. But let, let, let's distinguish something here. Mm -hmm. It's not a way to get financially rich, but it's yeah. a way to get heartfelt rich. Amen. Yeah. Perfectly said. I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Which obviously is underscored by I was willing to risk a lot. Of, to, to, I was willing to risk a financial hit in order to get that spiritual richness, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. There comes a time in our life when <laughs> I think for a lot of people, it comes a time in our life where that 
spiritual richness is more important. Yes. And I've had different times in my life where I've been poor, where I have been comfortable. Yeah, I, I will take spiritual richness anytime. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so much better. Yeah, yeah it really so, is. So you're consulting with people to help them start their farms? Yes, I am. Yeah. My projects are pretty varied. Like, for instance, right now I'm working on helping a family restart an abandoned farm in northern Ohio just for their family. And then eventually they're going to be subdividing it into a small rental community. Wow. Yeah, that's going to be like a farm to table with uh, grass-fed meats that they provide to their tenants, to the community, but their tenants first. So that's cool. That's a neat type of intentional community. And then there's a second one that I am working with in the Southeast United States where it is going to be a true agrihood where you take, think of the old developments where they would be centered around a golf course. Instead of a golf course, this is going to be an educational event center, an organic farm. Yeah. So that's going to be the draw. It's going to be the farm to table lifestyle community. So right now, yeah. There's a book called Agrihood. Oh, is there? Yeah. Somebody wrote (laughs) a book on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thing. There's a whole bunch of them all across the United States. About, I want to say a dozen prominent ones at this point. Yep. But I think we're going to see in the next 10 years, we're going to see a multitude of these little guys popping up all over the place. And the people that I'm teamed up with right now want to be on the forefront. So I want to say more, but there's some things in the works right now. I got to. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. But you, so you work with small individual farmers all the way up to people who want to put in agri hoods. Mm -hmm. Tell us where we find information about that. If somebody's listening and they say, Oh, I want to talk to Judith. They can contact me directly and depending on their agri hood or their project. If it isn't in my wheelhouse, I can certainly do my best to connect them with someone who can, but my, my farm is called Fairhill farm and it's fairhillfarm.com. And you can drop a line and reach out to me and find out things about that in the near future. After things get up and moving, I'm going to be keeping a, like a a journal of what happens Uh And then hopefully Um, turning that into a story of some kind, whether it's a book or a reference manual or something like that. But just the way that this is coming around and the things that I'm experiencing, the the, the gaps in knowledge, the sort of things that need to be innovated along the way because they haven't really existed or maybe they did, but we've forgotten them. And so they have to be pulled off an old shelf and dusted off and (laughs) reinvigorated and modernized. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. There's so much. Yes. Yeah. These even just these two that I'm working on are completely different from each other. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to your farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got this bug, did you say 20 years ago? 18, actually. I did say right. 20, but I think it was 18 to be specific. 18, yeah. Almost two decades ago. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when did you actually buy your farm? 10 years ago. Wow. So I so, did it in suburbia for 10 and now I've been on the farm for 10. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. I was in Phoenix for 32 on my little farmstead, the urban farm. And we've been here a year. And when you were talking about all the infrastructure and stuff, man, we are building oh. fences, building a chicken coops. We got to build a shed where, yeah, so putting in gardens. I recently 
have planted out a hundred fruit trees and I got a hundred more to go. So I, I hear you about getting that infrastructure stuff in place. It's a lot of physical labor up front. It is. It is. I'm very fortunate because both of my kids are adults and they're very into the lifestyle and oh, full, nice. fully committed to it. Yeah. My husband's super handy. I've always been a DIYer myself, yep. mechanically inclined by nature. So yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And it works out. Tell me about the day you decided to leave suburbia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was 10 years ago so, and it was a very defining moment. This, this is a, yeah. All right. So I'm going to set the stage. My husband are living, my husband and I are living in this uh, neighborhood 15 minutes outside of the city of Columbus. A nice suburb, comfortable, half an acre. It was actually around this time of year, it was mid to late August. It was when we're recording. So it was hot in the summer and the, the tomatoes were just starting to come in. And I was outside gardening. It was a weekend because I'm working during the week. So some new neighbors had moved in next door and I was hoping to see them. And sure enough, the mom of this family comes on out and she leans on the fence and she says, hi. And I, of course, dropped everything I was doing and trotted over to chat with her because I hadn't met her yet. I knew she was going to be moving in. Here's the new neighbor. I want to make a good impression and be neighborly and all that. My daughter was with me in the garden. She was helping. She was little at the time. So we chit chat and introduce ourselves. And the new neighbor mom says to me, so what are you doing out here? And he I was like, oh, I'm gardening. I'm a serious gardener and cook. And it's my thing. And I like gesture behind me to the, to this big green tangle of things all propped up. <laughs> my tomato six feet tall and everything. I said, yeah, it's my thing. And I'm a cook too. And she's like, oh, do you grow tomatoes? I, I love tomatoes. I said, yeah, absolutely. So I reach into my basket and I've been growing heirloom tomatoes forever. And this was 10 years ago. So not everyone understood that a purple and a yellow and a pink and a yellow and red striped tomato were just going to be delicious, if not better than the hybrids. So I intentionally grabbed one that looked sort of air quotes normal. (laughs) You don't want to overwhelm the new neighbor. I don't know what she knows, right? So I pull out this nice red one, which is the most generic innocuous looking red tomato. And I hand it out to her and across the fence. I reach out and put it in my open hand and hand it to her. And she looks at it and she pulls her hands into her chest and steps back a step. And she goes, oh, I, um, how do I know if it's safe to eat? Oh. How do I know if it's ripe? And I stopped for a second. It's like one of those moments where your time slows down. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right? And, and things, <laughs> right things are ripping through your through your brain and you know it's only one second in real time but you're having like this whole inner dialogue I'm like is she dumb is she sheltered is she making fun of me is do i have unrealistic expectations for people i'm struggling to relate in this moment with someone who has displayed this behavior without looking like a condescending witch next door i, I, I don't know what to do with oh, wow. i was like two different planets and I didn't want to be callous or anything. So, Oh, got it. And time sped back up. And I said, you know that it's safe when it looks like it looks in the grocery store. And she stopped and she looked, she's Oh, okay. Oh, thank you. She takes it and she's all happy. She's like, oh, it's too hot. I'm going in. I'm like, bye. And she turns around, she walks inside and I'm just sitting there staring at her back door. I wait till she's in. I'm checking, I'm making sure like those windows are closed, like 
looking around, no stray kids, like no one else is going to hear me say this. I turn, I look at my daughter and she's like eight years old. I think uh-huh. she was like eight. Yeah. And I look at her and I said, so honey, what do you think about that? What, what do you think? Because you know, kids are always watching. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. They're always watching that. And I, my daughter does not disappoint. And she looks at me <laughs> and she says, mommy, that woman is ill-equipped for life. <laughs> and that was it that was it i was it and wow. i went inside and i said to my husband we need to buy a farm we need to get out of suburbia like, we ended up doing it a couple of years later but that was the day that it all got into my mind i'm like and i need to get out of here i need to get out of here yeah did she ever take the tomato she did yeah she oh, took the right, tomato cool. all right yeah good. she took it and then, and then a couple of days later she told me oh it's so good do you have more i'm like yeah as many as you want and that's when i held out the basket of all different colors i'm like girl if you're gonna be living next door to me you're gonna be drinking <laughs> from the fire hose <laughs> right exactly yeah, yeah. wow mm-hmm. how cool is that and yeah. tell me about your farm so you're 10 years in how many acres do you have? Give us an idea if I walked up the driveway, what I might be looking at. Yeah, so it's 19 acres. So oh, it's nice. not, yeah, it's if you're coming from suburbia, it's pretty big. If you're coming yeah. from a farming family, they say, that's not a farm. So <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm somewhere in the middle, but yes, yeah. have, I do farm it. Uh, I have my agricultural use valuation. It's hills, it's slopes, it's flat land, it's a little bit of woods, it's three different soil types. I've got an orchard, I've got a 2,800 square foot kitchen garden. I have right now about 12 fruit trees, but you've inspired me to plant another 100 if I can. I've got to nice. chip away at that financially. Yeah, yep. yeah, we have about 200 linear feet of asparagus. We have peach trees, oh, pear oh. trees, apple trees, cherry trees, grapes whole bunch of raised beds. So that's our growing stuff. When it comes to our livestock, we have hair sheep, specifically Katahdins, and they are raised for meat. So I do breeding of them where I sell these registered, very highly parasite resistant pedigreed sheep mm-hmm. that are all grass fed. I sell them as registered lambs for those that I feel are up to snuff with continuation of the breed. And then the others are processed for family consumption and also selling to people who want to purchase clean grass fed meats. Lamb. Meats. Yeah. Yeah. Now and, what make is the hair? What's a hair sheep? It's not wool. It's hair. It's um, hair. Like almost, I guess if you've ever petted a goat, it's yeah. hair, hair like a goat or more like actually their hair is probably closest to like a German shepherd hair is probably the best way oh, to describe it. Yeah, and they shed it every year on their own in the spring, like a buffalo. It like comes off them in big chunks. Like you see pictures of buffalo and in Yellowstone. Yeah, it peels off them in in big chunks like that. So you don't have to shear them. Oh, that that makes it easier. Yeah. So I also have dairy goats, which I milk every day. Yeah. And I have a, yeah, I do a lot of things with their milk. And then we have air heritage, I was say heirloom, those are vegetables. We have heritage breed chickens, dual purpose chickens for eggs, nice. pasture raised eggs, and then also heritage turkeys, which are also, they still serve a dual purpose of being predator 
deterrent because they're mm-hmm. big birds. And then they also keep the peace in the barnyard. They keep the roosters from fighting with each other. <laughs> and they oh, also wow. suck up all the bugs and the ticks and the every all the bad oh, bugs and they nice. suck them all up. Yeah, they're pest control. I have a spoiled, useless pet peacock, and we have a guardian llama. And then of course the barn cats and farm dogs. Yeah. That's wow, this is this is a full-time job, isn't it? It is. Chores are only about an hour and a half in the morning, and then in the evening, they're about 25 minutes. So it's not that bad. We've got it down to a, a science. Nice. And of the hour and a half, that's a big chunk of that's probably milking, isn't it? It's about 50% of it is milking, and then the other half is feeding the other animals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so let's transition a little bit to really the reason for me my reason is that i believe that growing food in our fronts and backyards is the solution to our global food problems Uh, we have a food system that is significantly broken both from a nutritional perspective and then when when something like covid comes around empty grocery store shelves in fact i was at the grocery store the other day and a lot of shelves were empty and it's like what's going on Yeah. Yeah. So you have a big piece of this. That's your driver. Is Mm -hmm. it not? It is. It is a great question. Easy question. Deep answer. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's the big picture of the future of a resilient local food supply chain that drives me from independent producers. I feel like the path forward is also where we came from. Like the ideal model would be one of yesteryear, if that makes sense long time ago, pre big box grocery stores, World War Two era, I think, maybe to the 50s before things started getting super commercialized from a food perspective. Yeah. And not socially, or because more of the population lived in a rural or agricultural place, because obviously, we know that there's been massive demographic shift, like, I think 70 or 80% of the country's population lived on farms back in the 40s and 50s. Yep. And now 2% of our population is full-time farming, just 2%. That's a massive demographic shift within, what is it, two generations? Yep. There's some social impact to that, and something has to fill that vacuum. And that's where I come in. And I just I feel like in order to have a resilient food supply chain, it needs to be local and it needs to be from a lot of different producers and clean, fresh, nutrient-dense produce, which honestly is not the case in the grocery store most of the time. You don't feel that satiation when you eat something that you've got it on sale at a big box store that came from a mega farm. It might look like a vegetable, but if you ever had a winter tomato from the grocery store, it's like there is no way, there's no way what's in there is the same as what's in mine growing on homegrown compost. There's just no way. It might look the same, but it is. Your body knows that it doesn't contain the same stuff. So the nutrient density is an important part because we're all vitamin and mineral deficient for the most part today in modern foods. And I feel through my work, I can help people achieve that humanely raised meats and eggs and dairy products. And my part of sharing that future with my family, my community, and I know that's a mouthful, but at the end of the day, it's my role that I believe that I can play in the quality of life that my family, my customers, and hopefully my own community enjoys through my efforts and thus far and into the future. What we eat matters a lot. You're going to pay for your healthcare 
now by, <laughs> by, by doing the work in the field or supporting your farmer or like paying for high quality food, or you're going to pay it at CVS pharmacy or at the doctors or in medications and bills and shortened lifespan. There, there is no free lunch. There's no free lunch. We're biological creatures first and our bodies need certain things. And if we ignore it, we pay the price. Grandma says you are what you eat, right? Health being priceless and me being one who grows food for others. This is a sacred responsibility. And that's what drives me. Food freedom and a resilient, lucrative, self-sustaining local food supply chain to keep those people in business because being outside several times a day, 365 days a year. It's a very different way of living than yeah. most people have enjoyed thus far and continue to enjoy. Yeah. Well, we call it farm time. Wander out to the farm and three hours <laughs> later, you wander back and it's, oh, three hours just passed. Yeah. <laughs> and nutritional value is one of the things you're addressing. I heard from that. What is any other issues that you're looking at? Yeah, our, the way we look at food and where our food comes from, we're disconnected from it. Mm -hmm. And what worries me about that is that when you don't know where your food comes from, you don't know if you're eating good food or actual food. Yep. And it also changes the choices that you make in what you're going to feed your family and your children and serve to others and understand how it affects your bodily health. And also when you understand where your food comes from, you start thinking about how is it produced? And you're able to vote with your pocketbook. I can understand how a lot of people choose to be vegetarians. I'm not one of them. I love meat. I'm a meat eater. But I don't feel bad about the lives that I'm giving my meat animals. My animals have one bad day in their whole lives. Yeah. What, who? I don't know any humans who can tell me I've only had one bad day. <laughs> really? So that is when someone says they're vegetarian because they want to treat animals right, I'm like, these breeds have been around for millennia and to yeah. preserve them you've got to eat them and if your objection to eating them is because they've lived miserable lives then are you still objecting to eating meat if they're having good lives and some of them are just like no i don't want to kill them I'm like, okay that's fine but you think a little bit more you start pondering some of the bigger questions and i don't know it's complex and complicated yeah, it really is. The farmers only get 15, 13. I think it's down to 13 cents on the dollar. When people spend a wow. dollar for a tomato, let's say in the grocery store, only 13 cents of that dollar you've spent in that grocery store, only 13 goes cents to goes to the farmer. The rest of it goes to this corporate system. Yeah. And I understand that the system needs to deliver things to people in areas that are highly dense populated areas. Okay, you're not going to have a successful, huge organic farm in the middle of Manhattan. New York City. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, where's the most unlikely place? Yeah. And you're not going to have things very easy to be grown in Death Valley. Yeah. I, I get it. I get it. But the system has gotten so big that it's actually crushing small communities. And it is setting the choices before people where they think that's all there is. Yeah. They're in these grocery stores and I've got a choice between these three different kinds of tomatoes. That guy at Kroger has decided to stock on the shelf because I don't know any different because I'm connected, disconnected from where my food comes from. And so how do you know when it's right? How do you know when it's ripe? <laughs> Bingo. 
There it is. And even for me along the way, the first time I grew broccoli, I didn't know how broccoli grew. Isn't it weird? I planted some (laughs) seeds and oh, that's how broccoli grows. Oh my gosh, it gets chest high or waist high. And and what are these things shooting out the sides? Yeah, 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 it's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So you have a, a really big intent to transform our local food system. I'd like to do that. I'm working on just my area and trying to do my best to educate people. And platforms like this are fantastic. Right. But really, at the end of the day, you got to start with your own community first. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt to educate people along the way because people move around and people move from other places and they have so many varied experiences and backgrounds and contacts. It's great. So I love to talk about it because it's my my life's mission. But yeah, if I had to limit myself to just one area, I guess I would probably start with my own area with the hope that other people would work on their own areas because I know my geography. I know the people. I know the culture. I know the area and the landscape and the weather and everyone knows their own little area and that's where you start you start in your own area but the principles are the same keep the money in the community it serves the people because then you have employment you have the foods the people want you have the culturally important produce that might be grown in an area if you have a, a specific ethnic population it's a huge somali population in columbus ohio which seems strange but that's the way it is. And so there's a lot of things that are very popular in Columbus, Ohio, that you wouldn't think are popular in Columbus, Ohio, but they are. There's a very rich ethnic diversity here. Yeah. So there's overwhelming demand for goat. Who knew? I didn't. It's delicious. But yeah. Wow. Yeah. When someone at a desk is making these decisions and you're just in you get what you get. Yeah, you get what you get and you can't throw a fit. Meanwhile, you've got these other small producers out there and they're happy to serve their community. If you put them out of business, they're not able to serve that community. Yeah. And when you got these big box stores, you've got everyone else who never gets to try these ethnic foods, never gets to try these alternate heirloom tomatoes and these other things that come along. And it increases the blindness. It increases the ignorance because it perpetuates throughout the generations. Yeah. And people wow. have it easy. They think the food comes from the grocery store and it also <laughs> lulls them into it. They do. I know. And it lulls them into a false sense of security. And that was the tipping thing in COVID that really made me think about that. Because you go to the grocery store and the shelves are bare. And people are like, how can this be? I'm like, there's only... 48, 72 hours worth of food in the food chain at any time. Yep. Three days. Yeah. The thing that makes it great is also the thing that makes it so fragile. It's so fast. I know it's so efficient, but it's so efficient with so many parts that if one little piece breaks, it's like the whole thing just falls all down on itself. Yeah. You said something really important a little while ago, Hmm. and that is if you're the only one doing it in your community. Yeah. That's a problem. Yes. You've got to get the community involved, get them buying, get other former farmers going. Yes. I used to uh, encourage me. I had this project in Phoenix called 10,000 Urban Farms in Phoenix. And I had somebody in the media ask me one day, what happens when there's too many farms here and there's competition? Uh, right. And I just, I. <laughs> what a great problem to have. My goodness, right? Greg, what a great thing you've stumbled upon. <laughs> I just scratched my head and I said, first of all, there's 4.7 million people to feed in Phoenix. 
when we're growing enough food for them locally to feed them, then there might be competition. <laughs> and so I am a huge proponent of how do we get all of our boats floating higher? Because oh, yeah. if there's an issue, no, I'm not even going to say if, when there's an issue, <laughs> if you're the only one growing food in your neighborhood or in your city, mm -hmm. that's a problem. It is. It really is. That was when some of, I, I had people not literally knocking on my door because you can't even see my door from the road, but I had people saying, Hey, just all this friends of mine do grass fed beef. And they went from struggling to market their stuff to suddenly they can't keep up and they had to double their herds. Nice. People got the message. Yeah. I don't know that it's that way everywhere across the United States, but it's people certain. here got the message. Yeah. It's and it's certain. continued. It has sustained, even though things have returned back to, again, air quotes, normalish. It has continued to, like, people move to that. I'm happy to ruin food for anyone who wants to try something that I've grown. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, because you, you go to eat an, eat an egg that has come from a hen who's been out in the sunshine and chasing bugs. Yeah. It tastes completely different than what you get in the grocery store. And the Amen the, to that. Even the produce in the grocery store, they're different varieties because they're bred to travel, not for flavor, yes. not for nutrition. Well, but the, and, home, but the home gardeners, they, they grow for taste and taste and nutrition and resilience and all the other stuff. Yeah. And a big piece of this mm -hmm. is that when you harvest a piece of food, you harvest mm -hmm. a head of celery or tomatoes or mm -hmm. peaches or apples, the moment they get harvested, the nutritional value starts to decline. Absolutely. Yes. And 100%. Yeah. And the ones that are grown for on these mega farms, often they have to be harvested before they're fully ripe, Correct. which means they're harvested before they're most nutritionally dense. That's right. Before the mother nature has intended for the plant to be at its optimal condition to reproduce and therefore yeah. it's most nutritious and it's most plump and succulent. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is why I do what I do. I suspect it's part of why you do what you do. Absolutely. As soon as I tasted my grandmother was an avid gardener and she never planted tomatoes. They popped up out of her compost pile. <laughs> she just called she would just move volunteers around every summer. So yep. she had her own land race going. I wish I still had some of those. If I had known then what I know now, I would have been yep. swooping those babies up. But anyway, yeah. And even as a small child, I said, Mom, grandma's tomatoes taste really different than the grocery store. Yeah. It was like, nah, tomatoes are tomato. I'm like, no, it's not. Right. <laughs> and and so I, I finally convinced my mom to to try some of them. She says, yeah, that's because they're backyard tomatoes. I'm like, so what? Isn't it a tomato? We reverse the conversation. She says, no, because they're different kinds. So when you talk about this on a podcast, you have a podcast. Yes. Tell me about it. It's called Fairhill Farmstead Life. Now, I don't concentrate just on food supply chain re resiliency. That's my overall driver. Mm -hmm. But in order to achieve it, here's the thing. This is the way I look at it, I should say. I don't know if it's the thing. But the way I see it is this. <laughs> You're so much fun to play with. <laughs> sure. If we're going to have a more resilient food supply chain, and it's more locally oriented, then it needs to be a lot more farmers producing it. Now, I am not, in general, I am not in favor of big mega monoculture farms. 
So I'm not anti big farm, but I'm extremely pro small farm, if that makes sense. That's a really good way of putting it. I like that. Can I use Thank it? You. Yeah, it's all yours. There you go. <laughs> Feel free. No attribution necessary. So the way I see it is we have a lot of jobs that are very virtual today. The same, and these are sort of ponderings and musings from my own experience. Well, what was it that was so soul-sucking for me about my white-collar, high-paying management, business operations management job? I would come home at the end of the day and have nothing to, set, to, to show for it. And yeah. then when it was about something so important as food, I had limited options for my family. So I see a whole generation of people who are disconnected from their food and they seem to be disconnected from each other and life meaning as well. There's not just joblessness, there's hopelessness. Yeah. And that bothers me. And I feel like I see such a difference when people talk about, I have never seen like a hopeless gardener. What is that? I don't know. I've never seen a hopeless gardener who's, oh, life isn't worth what living. So I garden. That It feels like that connection with that earth and that physical thing and you're caring for a thing and then you get to enjoy that food and you have that accomplishment. I feel like it's such a, it's such a, a visceral benefit to us as emotional and spiritual and biological creatures mm -hmm. that people reconnecting with the earth is a very good thing. People go off grid to go camping. There's so much to be said for reconnecting with concrete things. Let me just say it that way. That being said, with this hopelessness and joblessness and our decreased options for food, and what is wrong with setting up your resilient food supply chain with a bunch of small farmers? The solution is right there described in part of the problem. Okay, so that means that a lot of new farmers need to get recruited. And you're a farmer, even if you're only growing in a couple pots on a balcony. So I'm in your club, Greg. I don't care how much land you have. Someone might bristle and say, 19 acres, that's not a farm. And I'm like, I don't think you understand what farming actually is. So the part that helps people is when they find out that they're not alone, they're not weird, they can do something. It makes a difference. It feeds their family. It'll help make them healthy. It feeds the local economy. All these positives. Yeah. We need a lot more farmers. And we, we have young people. Yep. We need a lot more farmers because the land is, we're not getting any more land. So we need to tuck a lot of farming into a lot of small places. You look back into history and the Parisian market gardeners of previous centuries were able to feed the entire city of Paris on 6% of the city's square footage. Wow. Extraordinary efficiency. That is. Why can't we feed ourselves? Now, this is some pretty intense gardening methods. Not everyone's up to composting horse manure and using cloches, and I, I get it. But the point is, we can be a lot more efficient and grow food, not lawns. So between your mission and what I'm doing on my podcast, I'm interviewing a lot of people that do different portions of the whole farming picture yep. in order to inspire, inform, entertain, educate, all of these things to people and say, you're not alone. You're not weird. I don't care if your family isn't a farmer. You're first gen. You're drinking from the fire hose. You're figuring it out. You're losing money. You're, you're losing animals. You're killing tomato plants. Fine. 
you're digging round holes for fruit trees because you don't know they're digging square right greg yeah it's there's a lot of there's a lot of things that when you get started in farming you need to understand you're non-imbecile there is a lot it it's a long process and we have a lot of work to do and so you can't learn farming overnight you got to get started now yeah if you're going to be farming in the future and we're not a crisis right now we've had a couple warning shots but we're going to reach crisis in the next decade for certain yeah we need to get people farming now because it takes a long time to learn this stuff it takes a long time so uh, last summer i had zach brooks from arizona worm farm remind me Mm -hmm. i interviewed him and he reminded me he said greg don't forget your first garden is your worst garden i heard that I love that. Your first right? garden is your, worst, your worst garden. garden. I love that. I'm going to steal that too. I've heard okay, it before, please. but I've forgotten to remind everybody of it. So yeah. I, we, I gardened in Phoenix for over 40 years. I knew how to garden in Phoenix in my sleep. The, the yard that I lived at for 32 years that we called the urban farm food just grew. Yep. And I got here. And on a scale of one to 10 last summer, our garden was a one. It was a miserable failure. Now, and you're a very accomplished gardener. Exactly. Come on, Greg. Aren't all tomato plants the same? Yeah, I wish. Isn't farming? Oh. Isn't gardening? Come yeah, on. I know. And <laughs> so this year, we've got it up to a four. But okay. you should see our very sad tomato plants. Yeah just but we did increase it to a four so i'm hoping for next season a year from now it'll be we'll get it up to an eight our garden on an eight of ten but it is a learning process and yeah this is why i do my podcast Mm -hmm. and i suspect this is why you do your podcast is so that people can see that you can in fact the next question is about a failure yeah you can see that you can fail and still be successful and learn from it. Yes, you certainly can. So I'm going to shift on you and let's talk about that. Let's talk, talk about, about a, a time you talk about a time you failed and how you overcame it and what you learned from it. Oh my gosh, I feel like I could write four books on my fails. Of course. <laughs> That's my value proposition. I can't I can tell you how not to make the mistakes that I made. Man, since I wasn't trying to since I wasn't trying to make a full-time job of this and i didn't have any generational knowledge to draw upon i made so many mistakes dumb crazy mistakes i wasted so much money because i wasn't in a rush Mm -hmm. i had the luxury of time there was nothing pressing this was a side thing for me it was a hobby it wasn't even a side hustle it was just a hobby hobby yep yeah so these were like penalty free disasters (laughs) oh my god that's a great way of putting it yeah yeah so they're all things i could look back at and laugh and just brush it off and wash your hands and move on and say wow i know how not to do that now yeah yeah but since we're talking about food supply chains i'll talk about my fail which is food supply chain specific i started selling pasture-raised eggs and grass-fed lamb locally and so i thought i'm not seeing pasture-raised eggs in the store and I'm not seeing a lot of grass-fed lamb in the store, so this should be a slam dunk. I should be able to go on into these retail establishments and sell to them, and then it's a one-stop shop for me. I don't have to deal with all individual cuts and a bunch of different customers. I don't have any problem with customers, but obviously a grocery store is gonna have a lot more reach than new kid on the block. Cool, this is easy. 
No, it's not. Because, uh-huh. yeah, I quickly realized that the system is definitely not set up to be friendly to small farmers. Not at all. Yeah, because not only were the big box stores not interested in buying smallish amounts from small farmers, they were not willing to pay enough for me to even cover my cost for production. Yep. Yeah. That was a big kick in the teeth. And I was astonished and pissed off about it. I felt, whoa, wait, you mean this is how our food supply chain works? And so you start <laughs> seeing what's going on behind the counter and you're like, everything suddenly looks a little bit different. It, it, I, it was madness. I, from the other side of the food supply chain, even the older blemish produce, I couldn't get them to give it to me. The stuff they were throwing out. They would not give me the spoiled stuff so that I could offset some of my feed costs for my goats, my sheep, and my chickens and turkeys. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't give me the blemish produce. Well, why not? We're not allowed for liability purposes. I'm like, I'm giving them to chickens. And, and at the time I had a couple pot belly pigs clearing pastures. Really? Pigs? Chickens? Like, where's the, what? They couldn't explain it. It was just policy and that was it. Yep. So, I've run into that before. Yeah. It was, they would rather put produce into the landfill than recycle it into the local food supply chain. And it just, it bothered me so much. It was a really ugly view into the sheer wastefulness of our big chain grocery stores. So I I did finally find some small independent health food grocery stores to carry my meats and eggs, but it was so expensive. They had a very small clientele and they had to pay for me to meet my costs. They had to have it so high. So I was barely like making profit. Mm-hmm. Okay. I covered my costs and maybe covered by gas, but other than that, I was just moving product. It wasn't enough for me to continue to make the improvements on my farm that I needed to make and to increase my production and and do marketing or get paint on my barn or a new new roof on my barn which I needed there's like buckets under the roof you know in certain spots when it rains it's it's really expensive to run a farm it's really freaking expensive everything is expensive everything so I you know I couldn't keep funding someone else eating my food like it's it at least needed to take care of itself and it you know there's a mathematical hole here at a certain point because it's then it's just charity it's a lot of time for charity and it just doesn't meet the purpose i wanted to expand i didn't want to be stuck in the same size i wanted to increase my local production for the reasons we all mentioned so anyway since people don't know where their food comes from, they just assume that it comes from these big stores and they buy from big farms across the other side of the nation. So I guess what I'm saying in my fail is that I failed in trying to get my superior products into stores in my own town. Mm-hmm. Because even though they're in my own town, they were not of my town they employed people at minimum wages and they brought in food super super cheap from mega farms on the other side of the country but they were not certain they they the the community is buying from them but they're not serving the community and in trying to do things that way i discovered that i was actually working against my purpose Mm. so that was my fail it was disheartening. Now, I did eventually find a couple places, like I said. And then I decided, no, I'm just going to have to go direct. So, yep. yeah. Farmers yep. markets, CSA. Yep. Yep. Chefs. Yep. 
yeah, individual customers that I get through the years and over time and find and adapt and make a model work. And it, it changes through the years. It changes from year to year a little bit. You got to be real flexible. But yeah, yeah. that's where I failed. I, I failed because I didn't go into it knowing how it actually worked on the back end. I was just like stars in my eyes. Oh, this is going to be great. It's going to work great. There's yeah. nothing else like it in here. And yeah, because they're not interested in buying it. One of the things I always suggest for people is to, because I recently had somebody reach out to me and he said, hey, I'm growing all these great sprouts. Do you have any place I can sell them to? Mm -hmm. And I really highly suggest if you're going to start growing for market, that you find the market first and then grow for it. Yeah, that's hard to do sometimes because asking people, "Do you want, would you be interested in this? They're like, I don't know. Can I yeah. try it? What are you talking about? So I recommend to my clients that, yeah, you find the market first, but you also have to grow a little bit. So the, the happy mm -hmm. medium seems to be start really small, yep. like little incubator, like testing, like little small samples of things, bring just a little bit and hand out free samples. Would you like more? That's great. Sprouts. Oh, I can be back in seven days with a lot more and scale right. up. Yeah. Exactly. Being small, miss small. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, this question mm -hmm. came from a major fail that I had in 2004. Okay. We were, we started a, a nursery in Phoenix called Urban Farm Nursery, and we were raising plant starts. And we started with 80,000 plant starts the first year. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, and then no. the weather, and then the weather turned on us in February and it was rainy every weekend in February of 2004. And so I ended up giving away about 50,000 plant starts and learning my lesson. So then Ouch. the lesson I learned from that was start small. Yeah. Start small, find your market. Mm -hmm. Find your market, grow with your market. And what do you consider your biggest success? Well, one of the dozen things that I do on my farm is I also make shampoo bars and goat's milk soap because you got to do something with all this goat's milk, right? You can't drink right. it all and turn it all into cheese and give it all away. So that's something else that I do with my goat's milk. I've had a dozen different clients tell me that the products that I make were the only thing that their kid, spouse, elderly mother, autoimmune, neurodivergent, teen, whatever wow. can handle. Because my emphasis was to be very pure ingredients, very natural ingredients, minimal ingredients, clean ingredients. And they found that only my soaps or my shampoo bars would address X issue, right? Eczema, kid that can't stand scents because they're autistic, things like that. It was an expected, unexpected gift to me, just in my heart. Like it was just very gratifying and responsibility and what I've produced has made a difference to at least a dozen of these different families. And people gush over my meats and eggs too and the quality of it. And don't get me wrong, it, that's great too. But I guess I've ruined grocery, grocery store meat and eggs, like I said, for them. But I've also uh, ruined shampoo bars and, and face and body sips for a bunch of other people. <laughs> so that's one of my biggest successes. I didn't right. expect to be as successful with my goat's milk soaps and shampoo bars as I have been. And don't get me wrong, I'd love to expand and everything. That's not my big main driver. So we yeah. are expanding. And my son, he's getting launched in life. He's 21 years old. So he's finding his niche. And so he's learning how to make these things. And he's really shown a lot of interest and aptitude for it. And that might be the way to do it, that he picks it up and he runs with it. Yeah, that's a success. You, When you get into something like this, with this type of motivation, doors open, and you get unexpected successes. Like I expect that I would be successful with my egg root and my grass-fed lamb. 
Yeah, I guess so. But it was the soaps that I also made because, by the way, I've got too much milk, and boom, I'm like, whoa! I like surprise. I didn't expect that. I surprise, yeah. Surprise. Who knew? Yeah. Nice. In the middle of Ohio, no one else is making or selling shampoo bars that lather properly with goat's milk in them. Who knew? Wow! So there we are. Uh, nice. And mm-hmm. you already touched on this one, but what drives you? Yeah, it is really the vision of food freedom and a resilient, lucrative, self-sustaining food supply chain with a lot of people doing their part and lots of small farmers getting together and working together. That's what drives me, being part of the solution, not standing around admiring the problem. People can talk about this forever. They can make policy, they can do other things, but I really love that I know that I'm, it's not a huge part, but it's my little corner of my little corner of the tiniest corner of the universe, but it's, it's, and it makes mine. a difference. And it makes a difference to the people yeah. I serve and it makes a difference to my family. Even my family, when they travel, yeah, they come back and they're like, Oh my God, my stomach's so messed up. Oh God. I just feel terrible. Mom, yeah. Could you, could you make us a, a Lamberger? <laughs> sure thing, honey. Your stomach's right. messed up and you want a Lamberger? Yes, I've just been wanting a Lamberger. Okay, Lamberger it is. Nice. One of your home homegrown tomatoes? Yep, there it is, baby. Just the yeah. way you like it. Nice. Yeah, that's what drives me. And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, I referred to it earlier when I talked about the Parisian market gardeners. That was a little tidbit I picked up in this book. I'm not completely done with it, but it has just, it's just, I am just absolutely enthralled with it right now. It's different than any other book I've read before. It's called Miraculous Abundance, A Quarter Acre, Two French Farmers, and Enough Food to Feed the World. It is by Perrine, P-E-R-I-N-E, and Charles, I'm going to mess this up because I'm not French, Charles Hervé, H-E-R-V-E, with a little thing over it, dash uh, Greer. Anyone who is even remotely interested in permaculture, food forests, and high efficiency, high intensity, interplanting, companion planting, like small spaces, intensive gardening. Mm-hmm. Really should read this book. It's amazing. And they even talk about how they fumbled their way through it. They didn't come from farming backgrounds either. And they fumbled their way through it and got into it. And the names they drop and the lessons they share, it's just, it's an imagination igniter, if that's even a phrase. Nice. Yeah. yeah what's, it, what's the name of it again? Miraculous Abundance. If you just look up Miraculous Abundance, it's on Amazon, it's a softback. But if you look up Miraculous Abundance, the by Perrine and Charles Hervé Grier. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that part about the historical achievements of the Parisian market gardeners. It it caused me to go back and redo my calculations for the agrihoods that I'm working on right now. Reading that book. Yeah, it was riveting. Paris was completely food independent in the 1800s and then they changed things around they changed policy and within one generation that food independence was lost to history boom because the people who were doing that gardening moved out and they took their knowledge with them and when those people who knew how to do those intensive methods left everyone else who didn't know where their food came from out of sight out of mind it was lost it was lost. So can you imagine a major city today, food independent? Yes, I can. Yeah. And I intend it. And 
it's we all have a lot of work to do yeah spoiler alert it requires a lot of horse manure according to the french market garden which with the invention of the car is now in much shorter supply so there are other hills to be climbed in that journey to food independence right i'm a huge believer in not using uh horse manure really unless this is a really Mm -hmm. important piece unless Mm -hmm. you know what they're getting fed yeah yeah because a lot of the mm-hmm. feeds that horses eat have herbicides in them. So they're pooping oh, yeah. out herbicides mm-hmm. and you're taking that uh, horse manure and putting in your garden and it's got herbicides in it and it's taking out your garden. You're exactly correct. Yeah. Someone gifted me a load of manure several years ago and I was so happy and I put it in my garden and the chickens walked over and looked at it and now and they walked away. I'm like, girls, come wait. This is what you wanted. They're like, no, there's nothing in it. It's dead. I swear yeah. it was dead poo. It was terrible. <laughs> it smelled yeah. bad. It didn't even like compost like normal stuff. Yeah. It was so, from it was from cattle that had been chemically dewormed aggressively. Yeah. There you absolutely. go. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's things that as a small farmer that you can do. So I'm going to give an example. The goats that I have. Uh-huh dairy goats they are fed with hay that either comes from my own land which doesn't really for i'm not going to get into the myriad of reasons the hay issues i have but because of the type of soil and where i live the hay that grows on my land is not the kind of hay that goats will do well on it's the kind that sheep will do well on meanwhile i have a friend down at the opposite end of the valley he is a rotational all grass-fed cattle farmer Uh. and he does no herbicide, no pesticide, no insecticide, and no grain. So it's all all natural there. And wow. so he'll bale hay. And so I get hay from him, and he gets milk from me, and I use the manure in my gardens because I know that those animals are getting fed the hay that comes not only from our immediate geographical area. Yep but also from another farmer that I'm working with and he's very strict carnivore diet. And then also he does the grass. He does the the fresh milk, the raw milk. So he has a herd share with me. He's my only herd share customer. He's not even a customer. He's actually a part owner of my herd and I do the milking every day and he makes the hay because I don't have the money for all that equipment. And it is a virtuous circle. He's comfortable eating it because he knows that those animals got fed the stuff that grows on his own farm. Amen to that. Yeah. So for those people who are worried about competing with other farmers, don't worry. There's always another way. Work with them. There's always another way. Yeah. Yeah. Beautifully said. And Mm -hmm. what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Okay. So the problems we have today are just new versions of ancient human struggles. Uh, that's the way I see it. Right. <laughs> it's continuous growth of a system and a population that's dependent on and therefore coming up against finite resources. So my advice is this, be willing to look to history, technology, and even non-institutional solutions. If the experts, air quotes again, had all the answers, they wouldn't be having the issues that we have today. And you can be part of your own local solution. There's no one unicorn global answer to every culture 
and every issue faced by every people in every biome, every climate, every country, every geography. It, it, it just, it doesn't exist. So don't count yeah. on the central planners, big experts to solve it for you. We won't succeed in finding new paradigms by doing the same old same listening to these experts solely because they have impressive pedigrees. It's a good accomplishment to have these degrees. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not anti-establishment, but a fat pedigree should not automatically confer deity status. So all you amateurs and with drive and brains and color outside the lines, blaze a path, try things out, experiment, be willing to have fails, right? And come up with new things. It requires vision and backbone. But if you're listening, wherever you are, if you're one of those people who can see things that others cannot in a different way early or with new perspective than most, this is a gift. Please, I beg you, wield it with delicacy and gratitude and reverence. These people who can see, these special people have a duty to shepherd others through difficult times and innovate to illuminate the path forward. If you're one of these people, you know what I'm talking about. Believe in yourself. Be willing to fail for the greater mission and keep going for goodness sake. We're at the start of an all-hands-on-deck situation, I believe. It might not be in the open just yet, but the zeitgeist is. We can all feel it. We're listening to this podcast. This is its own tribe. We know something isn't right with our food supply, and we know that things need to change, and everyone can play a part. So if you're not producing, then support. If you feel there's something amiss, and you can feel that something needs to change, make the effort to do differently. Change your patterns. Change your comfort zone, shift the way you do things to help set up an alternate system that makes sense. Participate, support your local farmers, become a farmer, be part of your local food supply chain, be willing to spend a little extra money or drive a little further or join the club and maybe you get some blemished weird looking produce. That is the way to resilience. Step outside your comfort zone, color outside the lines and think, think before you purchase. Wow absolutely brilliant thank, thank you, you for that thank you that was wow wow and thank you so much for joining us on the show today judith my pleasure how can our listeners get a hold of you and listen to your podcast yeah you can find me at fairhillfarm.com you can email me at judith at fairhillfarm.com i'm on facebook fairhill farm and caperderma caperderma which means goat skin. Caperderma is my brand of shampoo bars and soap. So if you see that, feel free to support our farm future and my son's future business venture, I believe. Nice. On LinkedIn, I am Fairhill Farm LLC. To listen to my podcast, which is mostly other people and not me so much, I'm interviewing others. It is on Spotify or Podbean hopefully further than distribution than that is called fair hill farmstead life nice 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 you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash fair hill farm thank you greg what a wonderful time i've had today i really appreciate this opportunity Ooh, right back at you all right we hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.